Platelets are critical to human survival. What's the cutting-edge platelet research, and what clinical impact is it having? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss breakthroughs in platelet research is Dr. David J. Cooter, Chief of Hematology at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Dr. Cooter is a board-certified physician in internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology, and he chairs the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia subcommittee of the NIH Network for Transfusion Medicine and Hemostasis. He's also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Cooter, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Dr. Bloom. It's a pleasure to be with you today to talk about these new areas. So when did the modern era of platelet research begin? That actually began very recently in 1994 when the molecule thrombopoietin was discovered. So newer data suggests that platelet diseases are both disorders of increased destruction and decreased production. How did we learn that? Again, that that applies primarily to a condition called ITP or or immune thrombocytopenic purpura. We've learned from what are called platelet kinetic studies that in patients with ITP, which has long been known to be associated with antibodies that bind platelets and destroy them, we've learned from kinetic studies recently that those patients who we would have thought would increase their rate of platelet production didn't do so. And hence, most patients who have ITP or platelets are being destroyed have a situation where their hoped-for compensation does not occur, and most patients with ITP have a normal or only slightly increased rate of platelet production. What's the molecule that regulates all this, and what have we learned about it recently? The molecule that has set us on a different track since 1994 was the discovery of thrombopoietin. Thrombopoietin is a 94,000 molecular weight protein, which is made in the liver. It's made in a constant fashion, and it enters our circulations, and it binds to target receptors called the thrombopoietin receptor, on bone marrow cells, and it, it promotes the growth of the precursor cell megakaryocytes, which in turn make platelets. So why don't we just find ways to increase the production of thrombopoietin inside the body? Well, interestingly enough, the only hematopoietic growth factor which actually is regulated in our body in such a fashion is erythropoietin. When we're anemic, we make more erythropoietin. But all the other hematopoietic growth factors, such as granulocyte colony slimming factor, monocyte colony slimming factor, and now thrombopoietin, are regulated in a much different fashion. They're all made in a constant rate in our body, thrombopoietin being made in a constant rate by our liver, and nothing increases or decreases the rate of production. The only exception I'll make is that if you have liver disease and your liver is destroyed or partially destroyed, say, by cirrhosis, your production of thrombopoietin drops dramatically and your platelet count also drops. Can we think of an evolutionary reason why thrombopoietin would be regulated in this way? I wish I could. I've been thinking about this for a number of years. What I will tell you is in, in, in situations or animals where we knock out the production of thrombopoietin, the platelet count drops down to a low level, but not a level that's incompatible with life. So you can have animals and also humans that have platelet counts about one-tenth of normal, which is what happens when you don't have thrombopoietin. These animals live totally well. I suspect uh, as we evolved as a fighting society and bled a lot, a higher platelet count might have been more protective, but I can't give you a good answer for that. Are there other animal species that have a different kind of thrombopoietin regulation? No. uh, We have uh, evolved almost all vertebrate species to have platelets platelets regulated in this fashion. So have we made an analog of thrombopoietin, and how does it work? Yes. As soon as thrombopoietin was identified back in 1994, within a year, uh, two recombinant thrombopoietins were identified, and they entered clinical practice. One was a molecule that was a virtual replica of the endogenous native thrombopoietin. Another was a portion of the molecule that bound the receptor only that was coupled to polyethylene glycol called PEG-MGDF. And both of these had uh, half-lives in the circulation of 40 hours. Both 
rapidly made the platelet count rise in animals and in humans who were human volunteers, and they were tested in a wide variety of situations. And are either one of those on the market, and are they working right now? No, despite the fact that they showed a benefit in a number of areas, and in brief areas that they showed benefit in was chemotherapy-induced thrombocytopenia, apheresis, plated apheresis donors, and a few patients, ITP, they're not in the market now because one of the drugs had antibodies developed against it, the PEG-MGF molecule. And what happened is those antibodies bound the recombinant product, but then also cross-reacted with the native molecule. And since we make the native molecule a constant rate, we effectively knocked out production of thrombopoietin. So these early experiments that were done that showed benefit from thrombopoietin were stopped about 1998 or up to 2000 because of the antibody issue. And has the scientific community made different kinds of new analogs, and how are they working? Yes, because of the benefit that we saw with the early molecules, we felt that if you could make a non-immunogenic molecule, that would have clinical benefit. And this also allowed chemists and scientists to develop different kinds of thrombopoietic molecules. One type was to make a peptide, which was activating the thrombopoietin receptor, but did not have the same amino acid sequence as did the native molecule. Hence, if an antibody was made against this new peptide, it would not cross-react and knock out the endogenous thrombopoietin production. And several such peptides were made. They were then inserted into different carrier molecules to prolong their half-life. And one of these, called remiplostim, is currently FDA-approved for the treatment of ITP. Other areas of investigation identified small chemicals, which are now orally available, that bound the thrombopoietin receptor and activated it, and these molecules are in clinical development right now. And finally, you can make monoclonal antibodies that bind the thrombopoietin receptor and activate it and increase the platelet count. And these are also being developed at a much slower rate by several pharmaceutical companies. You mentioned that remiplistin is on the market now. When was it approved and when do you think it'll get wide-scale use? Remiplistin was approved in August of 2008. It is a molecule which was studied in, primarily in ITP, and it's currently approved for ITP. The brand name is Enplate, and the generic name is Remiplostim. It was developed under the name AMG531. It is a molecule which showed major benefit in treating ITP patients, with more than 80% of patients responding to it in a clinical trial that lasted for 24 weeks. This molecule is now available and is being used by practitioners to treat patients with refractory ITP currently. And did it work for both splenectomized and non-splenectomized patients? Yes, that's what was striking about this, this molecule. It worked almost as well in splenectomized patients who'd received up to six prior th- treatment regimens and failed them as it did in patients who had not yet been splenectomized, with response rates being uh, about 78% in the splenectomized group and 88% in those who had not yet been splenectomized. The response rates also lasted for a long time. In patients on our 24-week trial, most patients maintained a platelet count, which previously had been below 30,000 and was now above 50,000 most of the time. In open-label studies, which followed those initial phase three studies, we've had patients now out on these molecules for three or four years with stable control of their platelet count over 80% of the time. So these molecules work in a short period of time, over 24 weeks on one clinical trial, and now in a very long open-labeled trial, they've been showing efficacy out to 156 months. What else has this drug done for patients with ITP besides increase their platelet counts? There are many things that ITP patients want. One is they're concerned about a higher platelet count, and as I mentioned, this drug increased the platelet count quite dramatically and maintained it. 
The second thing that ITP patients want to do is come off their concomitant therapies, such as steroids and immunosuppressive agents. And what was dramatic about our study is that in the splenectomized group, for example, 100% of patients who've been on steroids either discontinued or reduced their steroid dose versus only 17% of patients who are in the placebo group of patients. Furthermore, patients with ITP tend to have their platelet counts wax and wane. They rise and fall from time to time, and patients require what are called rescue medications, things like IVIG and anti-D that transiently increase the platelet count. And the use of such rescue medications dropped dramatically by almost two-thirds in patients who received the remiplostim drug versus those who received placebo. Is there any reason for us to believe that this will not be durable for these patients? I think right now in the studies we've done with patients out three or four years in these molecules, there's been no suggestion of, of tachyphylaxis or loss of response. There have been a few long-term potential risks identified, and those are being monitored very closely in our ongoing clinical trials. And what are those side effects, and what are the less severe ones that patients experience as well? From remiplostim, the major minor side effect is this is a subcutaneous injection usually given once a week. Most patients have no troubles with this. It certainly pales in comparison to getting prednisone every day at rather toxic doses. Many patients, perhaps a third, had a mild headache within several hours of receiving the administration, and those are the two minor side effects that occurred. Another issue that did appear in our clinical trials, particularly when we stopped the drug, is this is a therapy that boosts the platelet production but does not affect the concurrent platelet destruction. So as soon as, as soon as you stop stimulating platelet production, the platelet count falls. And in about a four out of 56 patients in one study, the platelet count actually fell below their prior baseline, and it took a couple of weeks for it to return back to their prior baseline. This did not result in any bad clinical sequelae, but stopping these molecules in ITP is not a wise idea, at least doing it abruptly. Another concern which came out of our clinical trials is the occurrence of what's called reticulin in the bone marrow. Now, reticulin, which is a type of collagen that's identified by a silver staining technique, which was created 100 years ago, is present in two-thirds of patients Actually, it's present in two-thirds of normal individuals. In ITP patients, it's probably present to the same extent. In 10 out of over 200 patients we have studied, this reticulin appeared to be increasing a bit in some of these patients. It did not appear to cause them to have any hematologic abnormalities, but again, it's something which we're studying right now to see if there's any long-term sequelae of reticulin formation. Why might this be of concern? It's of concern because many physicians associate reticulin formation with a clonal bone marrow disease called myelofibrosis. And I think what's probably important to state right now is the administration of this class of drugs to ITP patients does not appear to cause the disease myelofibrosis, but simply an increase in reticulin, which is reversible. Can these treatments that are now being used for ITP be used in any other platelet disorders like myelodysplastic syndrome or thrombocytopenia due to hepatitis C? Yes, and I think this is where a lot of great excitement occurs right now. I think that in MDS patients, a small trial done at the MD Anderson Hospital and elsewhere showed that about half of patients who received remiplostim for a month had their platelet count rise above 50,000. This did not seem to have any effect upon bleeding risks, but the major concern that was found in those studies was some patients had an increase in blast percentage, which has given us some pause in these studies. There are ongoing studies that are just about to be started as well, looking at the use of remiplostim in MDS patients who are getting concurrent chemotherapy. I think the major area for these drugs might be in hepatitis C thrombocytopenia. As you know, hepatitis C is a very common condition in our country. Thrombocytopenia also commonly ensues. And if the platelet counts less than 70,000 in some of these individuals, 
antiretroviral therapy, which may be cured of the hepatitis C, is often not given or at least complicated by the thrombocytopenia. And using a different thrombopoietic agent called L-thrombopeg, which is a small molecule, distinct in structure and different from remiplostim, it was shown in a very nice clinical trial that platelet counts could be brought into the normal range with oral administration of this drug L-thrombopeg, and the patients then could undertake and successfully complete antiretroviral therapy over the next 12 weeks. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David J. Cooter, Chief of Hematology at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School, for joining us to discuss breakthroughs in platelet research. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit www.reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This week, ReachMD is moving to XM Channel 160. Please make a note and tell your associates and friends. ReachMD, the nation's channel for medical professionals, will now be on XM 160. And thank you for listening.